And, and I know, Cameron, I absolutely love you. And I love that your favorite part is going behind the, the boat. Um, it's pretty awesome. And, and for me, it's really exciting to get to share a part of where I've grown up uh, with people that I love. But the most exciting part for me was watching Cameron and Ian over these last two years loving on the kids that would show up for this Mexico house build. The, the, just the kids from the community will just start flocking around and, and Cameron and Ian would do some painting with them and then they would just go off and play. And it was so fun to get to watch them. And I'm really sad they're not going to be here this year, but I hope I, I I'm asking you guys to seriously consider, would you join us in going down there? It is completely safe. My dad's down there at least once a month. Um, we've had zero issues going down. I'm bringing my children, my six-year-old and my two-year-old. I feel that strongly about is the safety of going down. And it will change your life. I remember when we did the Mother's Day video and talking about things that impacted them. And, and I remember Cameron specifically saying, going down to Mexico impacted me. And then my son talking about going down to Mexico is how it's impacted him. This is one of those things that as a family, as an individual, as a couple, it will be valuable to do. All right. That's all I'm going to say about that. Hey, Merzes, how are you guys? Welcome. You guys can sit in the front row. <laughs> um, if you want some more information about it, I do have a sheet on the back table that you can grab that's got all the details on it. Now that Todd and Jen have done the walk of shame, we're going to go ahead and get started. So turn with me to John chapter 7. We are, um, I, I'd like to say that they were dropping their kids off across the street, but they don't have any yet, so they don't have that excuse. <laughs> time, just give it time, it'll happen. Um, so, we're in John chapter 7, and, and basically the, the focus of the Gospel of John is we've been going through the major thing that time and again has been kind of forcing people to wrestle with is this question of who is Jesus, and specifically, who is he to you? Who would you say that Jesus is? And as he's been ministering to people, as he's been healing people, as he's been teaching, feeding multitudes, we saw that people are just gathering and flocking to him. There's something about Jesus that draws them to him. Maybe it's the, the way in which he teaches. He teaches with authority that doesn't seem like all of the other rabbis and teachers who kind of were constantly just quoting other rabbis that came before them. He was just teaching with this sort of innate authority as if he knew God himself. There was also something about his authenticity. He was just real and he spoke right to the heart of things rather than kind of just going around the edges. He was always right to the heart of things with people. And so people began to flock to him. Probably didn't hurt also that he was healing people. He was feeding people. He was taking care of the tangible needs that he saw in front of them. And so people were attracted to Jesus. And yet at the same time, when they got close to him, they began to realize that he didn't quite match what they had expected of the would-be Messiah, the one who God would send to redeem his people. And so there was this kind of like, well, who is he really? Is he the Messiah? Is he the one we've been waiting for? And if not, then who is he? And the interesting thing is, especially in the last couple of chapters, we've seen the ways that people would come, they'd get close, and some would say, I believe, and begin to follow him, but others would, would kind of walk away and determine, no, he doesn't match my perceptions of what I expected, so therefore, I'm out. In chapter 5, we saw the way that Jesus healed a guy who had been crippled for 38 years. And yet, the religious authorities in Jerusalem completely disregarded the fact that he healed somebody and instead focused on the fact that he did it on the Sabbath and he, that he asked this guy to pick up his mat and walk on the Sabbath. 
And so they condemned Jesus for that. And then in chapter 6, we saw the way that Jesus was amongst the people. He fed 5,000 people. And I apologize. I'm going to come down here because I like... But if you guys can't see, there's plenty of space down here right now. Um, Jesus fed a bunch of people. And then... You know, the people start kind of congregating around him and he begins to teach them saying, hey, listen, I gave you bread and you're here because of the bread. But let me tell you, I am the true bread from heaven. The one that God has sent that if you eat of my flesh and drink of my blood, you will have life in yourself because I'm the bread that gives life. And the people are like, ooh, I'm not really sure how I feel about that. So many of his disciples actually ended up leaving and, and walking away from him. And and so we get to chapter 7 now. And one thing I want to mention, because we... Can you throw the map up there for a second, Mark? Again, context is key, and I'm sorry if it's hard to see. I'm just going to go ahead and try my very best to, to, give, to make this accessible. Um, up here is the Sea of Galilee. You see the little sea, and it runs down. There's the Jordan River, and this is the, uh, the Salt Sea, or the Dead Sea is what we call it. Over here is Jerusalem. Now, this area down here around the Dead Sea is what we know know as Judea. This was kind of the the epicenter of Jewish life. This is where all the people who were anybody really resided. Then in the middle here is Samaria. Right Right above the area of Judea is Samaria. This is where the Samaritans lived, the people that were kind of religious half-breeds, they, they were the Jews that stayed when everybody else, all the rest of the Jews, were kind of kicked out of the land, and they intermarried with people who had moved into the area, so they were in many ways treated kind of like um, children of blacks and whites in the South were treated for much of the last, the, the 20th century, just horribly. They were treated as less than human. And then up here, we have the Sea of Galilee, and when we talk about Galilee, we're not only talking about the sea, which is the... the body of water up there, but we're talking about the whole region, the region of Galilee. People who lived in Judea down here would look at the people who lived in the, sea of, in the Galilean region kind of like we might look at people who live in the Inland Empire, right? I remember when I was a lifeguard for a while, and I'm sorry if you're from the Inland Empire, but as a lifeguard, I would have people who would show up in cut-off jeans and a white shirt and like a chain you know, for their wallet hanging on their pocket, and they would go out into the ocean like this. I'm going, oh, 909ers, you know, there they are, the, the, the Riversiders are here, and we would mock them, and that's the kind of attitude that people from the south, from Judea, had towards the people from Galilee. Oh, these are backwater, podunk kind of people, and they would write them off. Well, the interesting thing is Jesus lived, he grew up in an area called Nazareth, it's a town that is up in the Galilean region, and he did a lot of his ministry around this region, But three times a year, he would make the trek south down to Jerusalem to the capital city because they had three different feasts or or, um, festivals that all of the men, all of the Israelite men were expected to come and celebrate. And so three times a year, at least, he would make that trek down. So we read in in chapter 7 that after this, after Jesus has fed all these people and ultimately had a lot of his disciples leave him because of some of the hard teaching he was saying, he went around in the Galilean region. Now, he didn't want to go around in Judea in the south because of the Jewish leaders there were looking for a way to kill him. Why were they looking for a way to kill him? What did he have done? He, he healed somebody on the Sabbath. He broke the Sabbath. He, taught, he told a guy to pick up his mat and walk and break the Sabbath. Here is a terrible man. And so the Judean leaders are looking for a way to kill him. And so because of that, Jesus tended to do the majority of his ministry up there in Galilee. 
But when the Jewish festival of tabernacles was near, this was the last festival during the year, the one where they would um, celebrate the harvest of the trees, so the olives and um, other fruit trees and whatnot. During that festival of tabernacles, when it was coming near, Jesus' brothers said to him, Hey, leave Galilee and go to Judea so that your disciples may see the works that you do. No one who wants to become a public figure acts in secret. And since you're doing these things, show yourself to the world because even his own brothers did not believe in him. Here's what's going on here. His brothers, along with probably most of the other Jews, including some of his disciples, looked at Jesus as somebody who was desiring to be the Messiah, but it was more of a political Messiah. Their idea of the Messiah is radically different from our understanding of the Messiah. When we think of Jesus being God's redeemer of mankind, we are thinking holistically that Jesus came to die on the cross to take our sins upon him so that we could have relationship with God. That is a spiritual Messiah. But the the Jews tended to look at the Messiah as a political Messiah. He was going to be the man who would ultimately gather up all the people He would become king of the Jews. All the people would flock to him and he would reestablish Israel as the preeminent nation in the world. Does that make sense? That was their understanding of what the Messiah was supposed to be. And because of that, they're saying, hey, listen, if you want to be somebody, if you want people to to look at you as the Messiah, we don't think you're going to be him. But if you want that, then you need to get down there, especially right now when it's the Feast of Tabernacles. Everybody who's anybody is there. You need to go down, you need to heal people, you need to feed people, you need to do all the stuff you've been doing, and maybe you'll gain a following. His brothers didn't believe he was going to be the Messiah, but they said, hey, if you want to be it, then you need to get down there. You need to kind of address the, the hostility that you've been getting from the Jewish religious elite as well. Interestingly, later on in Jesus' life, his brothers would come to have faith in him. In fact, two of his brothers, James and Jude, would come to have such great faith in him that they would ultimately pen letters that are included in the Bible in the New Testament that bear their name. James, the book of James and the book of Jude were written by Jesus' half-brothers. But at this point, they're skeptical, along with a whole lot of other people in Israel, about who Jesus really is. They say, if you want to be the king of the Jews, if you want to be this political Messiah that everybody thinks that you're aspiring to, then you need to get down there. Jesus responds in verse 6, but Jesus told them, my time has not yet here for you, any time will do. If if all I'm trying to do is shake hands and kiss babies, any time is a good time to do that. The world can't hate you. But it hates me because I testify that its works are evil. Listen, the message that I give is not one of just trying to gather accolades and people, you know, responding positively. If that was my goal, man, back in chapter 6 when Jesus had fed 5,000 people, they were trying forcibly to make him king at that moment. And Jesus just kind of walked away from it, hid from it ultimately walked across the sea and went to a different part of Galilee because he was trying to avoid that type of political expectation. He was there for a different reason. He said, for you, anytime will do. But the message I bring, it's actually going to make people upset because I shine light into the darkness. I speak truth against the evil that men and women harbor in their hearts. And it's not going to be popular It's going to separate people. People love the evil that they do, and so therefore they're going to avoid me. They're going to push me away. So this is not yet the time that my Father has provided. 
So you go to the festival. I'm not going up to the festival because my time is not yet fully come. And after he said this, he stayed in Galilee. However, after his brothers had left for the festival, he also went, just not publicly, but in secret. In other words, Jesus decided, I'm not going to go with a great fanfare and a lot of people following on my footsteps and say, hey, here, here I come. That would come later. During the triumphal entry, during the Passover festival, Jesus would enter in in that way. But at this point, he's wanting to go under the radar and just be there. So he went, uh, he didn't go publicly, but in secret. Verse 11. Now at the festival, the Jewish leaders were watching for Jesus and asking, well, where is he? Amongst the crowd, there was widespread whispering about him. Some said, well, he's a good man. Others replied, no, he he deceives the people. But no one, no one would say anything publicly about him for fear of the leaders. Because at this point, the Jewish religious leaders were very much against him. But the jury was still out and the people are going, I'm not sure where things are going to land. I'm not sure how this is all going to play out. So it's better to just kind of keep it quiet. Maybe think about these things, but not go publicly because they were afraid that if they spoke out in, in, you know, in agreement with or in support of Jesus, there was going to be a strong public backlash. Or on the flip side, if they spoke out against him, and all of a sudden the tide of sentiment changed, they were going to find themselves on the losing end. It's kind of like talking politics during a, an election cycle. It's kind of a good way to lose friends. And so that's kind of the keeping it on the low pro. Verse 14, it was not until halfway through the festival that Jesus did go up to the temple courts and begin to teach. The Jews there were amazed and asked, how did this man get such learning without having been taught? Because in this day, in this age, in this culture, what would happen is a young boy would be sent to a school, to a rabbinic school, where a rabbi who had been trained his whole life by an older, wiser rabbi, who had been trained his whole life by an older, wiser rabbi, this rabbi would teach this child everything. The the boy would memorize the entire Old Testament tons and tons of scripture memorized. He would learn all of the rabbinic teaching upon that testament as well. And ultimately, when that boy came of age and he passed all the tests, he would graduate from this rabbinic school, and then he would then go and begin to gather disciples of his own, and he would pass on the teaching that he had learned from his rabbi, who had learned from his rabbi, and so forth. That was the authority that this rabbi, this child who had grown into a rabbi would have. The authority of all of the rabbis that stood before him and all of their teaching. And he would quote them. But here's Jesus, who's teaching the people, and he hasn't been to a rabbinic school. He hasn't graduated. He doesn't have his Ph.D. in theology. And they're going, well, that's amazing. He speaks so well for somebody who you know, hasn't been educated. That's amazing the depth of his teaching when he's not quoting other rabbis. And in another way, it was a way of downplaying Jesus because if they couldn't argue with what he was saying, at least they could argue with his credentials. I'm sorry, you don't have your high school diploma. I'm sorry, you don't have your college degree. I'm sorry, you don't have your master's or your, your PhD. Whatever. Who, who are you to speak? You have no ground to stand upon. Verse 16, and Jesus answered, my teaching isn't my own. Okay, I'm not making this up. It comes from the one who sent me. And in case that wasn't forthright enough, he tells them who sent him. Verse 17, anyone who chooses to do the will of God will find out whether my teaching comes from God 
or whether I speak on my own. Because whoever speaks on their own does so to gain personal glory, to make their own name great. But he who seeks the glory of the one who sent him is a man of truth. There is nothing false about him. So no, I have not been trained by any human being. I have not been to a rabbinic school. But that does not mean that what I am saying is not important. Because I have been trained by God. My teaching comes from him. And what I say are the things that he has informed me. The words he has placed on my lips. And then after kind of giving his credentials, he then talks about the pink elephant in the room. The fact that everybody there, not everybody, the fact that many there are looking for a way to trip him up and ultimately get him silenced. He says in verse 19, Has not Moses given you the law? Yet not one of you keeps the law. Yet not one of you has perfectly followed the law. So why are you trying to kill me? And the people are like, well, wait a minute. Who's trying to kill you? You're crazy, man. You're demon-possessed. This is another way of saying you're crazy. You're demon-possessed, the crowd answered. Who is trying to kill you? And Jesus said to them, I did one miracle. I healed a guy who for 38 years had been shackled. And you were all amazed. Yet, because Moses has given you circumcision, although it wasn't Moses, but the patriarchs who gave you circumcision, you circumcise a boy on the Sabbath. The thing is, circumcision was the sign in that time of somebody who belonged to Israel. So a male boy, when he was eight days old, would be taken and circumcised by a rabbi. Even if the eighth day happened to fall on a Sabbath, they would still go through with that in order to keep the Mosaic law. Now, verse 23, if a boy can be circumcised on the Sabbath so that the law of Moses may not be broken, why are you angry with me for healing a man's whole body on the Sabbath? It makes no sense. You guys have fixated on the letter of the law, but you've completely missed the heart of God. The law, I'm sorry, man was never intended to keep the law. That was not the purpose of mankind. Rather, the law was intended to keep man in relationship with their God and with one another. And yet you guys have made the law more important than humanity. You've made the letter of the law more important than the heart of God, which is about healing people and saving people and having relationship with his kids. You're missing the point. You've made the law far more important. Verse 24, so stop judging by mere appearances, but instead judge correctly. Figure this out. Well, at this point, some of the people in Jerusalem begin to ask, well, isn't this the man they're trying to kill? Isn't this the one they've been talking about? Here he is speaking publicly, and they're not saying a word to him. Have Have the authorities really concluded that he's the Messiah, God's anointed redeemer? But wait a minute. We know where this man is from. We know he's from Galilee, from that little podunk town up there. But when the Messiah comes, no one will know where he's from. Interestingly, what's going on here is that there were a lot of different perceptions of what the Messiah was supposed to be like. There were a lot of different expectations. Some people said, we just think the Messiah is going to show up miraculously, almost like he fell from heaven one day and, and he's going to begin his ministry. And so the fact that we know where Jesus is from, we knew we know he's grown up in Nazareth. We know his parents. We know that he is a carpenter. He can't possibly be the Messiah. Other people, on the other hand, and we're going to see them speak out in a little bit, other people would say, no, we looked at Scripture, we know that Scripture says that the Messiah is going to come from the line of David. We know that the Messiah will be from David's hometown of Bethlehem. So the fact that he's from Nazareth in Galilee uh, is a 
knock against him. He can't possibly be who we're thinking he might be. Verse 28, then Jesus, still teaching in the temple courts, cried out, yes, you know me and you know where I'm from, but I am not here on my own authority. He who sent me is true. You don't know him, but I know him because I am from him and he sent me. At this point, there are some people who are going, this guy is claiming to be from God. He's claiming, and and, and he has claimed at other times, that God is his father. This guy is out of control. And so some people wanted to grab him and, and arrest him and take care of business right there. But there were others who were going, he could be the Messiah. And they're beginning to believe in him. And, and there's this kind of swirl of differing perspectives and sentiment going on in the temple at that time. Verse 32. I'm sorry, verse 30. At this, some of them tried to seize him, but no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. Still, many in the crowd believed in him, and they said, When the Messiah comes, will he perform more signs than this man has performed? So there's some that are beginning to have belief. Well, when the Pharisees heard the crowd whispering such things about him, the chief priests and the Pharisees sent temple guards to arrest him. Basically, enough of this. There are some people who are beginning to believe that he's the Messiah. We need to silence this guy, so go and arrest him. Jesus said to them, This is verse 33. I am only with you for a short time, and then I'm going to the one who sent me. You're going to look for me, but you're not going to find me. And where I am, you cannot come. Jesus knew what was coming. He knew it wasn't going to be at this moment, but he knew what was coming. He knew what it was going to take to ultimately fulfill the messianic goal that God had in place and trusted to him. He was going to be arrested. He was going to be rejected by his own people. He was going to be mocked tortured, crucified, killed. But he also knew that God was bigger than death. He knew that God would overcome sin and it was going to be through that suffering, through that ridicule, that that rejection, that ultimately God would redeem his people. So he knew it was coming and he was willing to continue to journey down that path, even though he knew it was going to be painful for him. But the people misunderstand him when he says, I know where I'm going and you can't come with me. In other words, the time is short. And if you continue to reject me, then time's going to run out and you will have rejected God in the process. And then you won't be able to go with me. Well, they think that he's talking about Jesus going and seeing the Gentiles, going and preaching to the Greeks. Verse 35, the Jews said to one another, where does this man intend to go that we can't find him? Is he going to go to our, where our people live scattered amongst the Greeks, amongst those Gentile believe, or those Gentiles who we want nothing to do with, that we don't interact with at all? Is he going to go teach the Greeks? What does he mean when he said, you're going to look for me, but you're not going to find me, and where I am going, you cannot come? Ironically, because of the Jews' hard hearts, because of many of their unwillingness to trust Jesus or to follow him, ultimately the gospel message was preached to the Gentiles. Ultimately, God's purpose of saying, you're going to be my ambassadors, passed in large part from the Jews to the Gentiles, and they began to share the good news with others. And the gospel message actually made far greater inroads into the, into the Gentile communities than it did into the Jewish communities, particularly during Jesus' life which is good news for many of us because we're not from Jewish origin. And the fact that God allows us to be his hands and his feet, his representatives is a wonderful, wonderful thing. But Jesus is saying, hey, don't reject me while I'm here because time is short. 
And then we get to the last and the greatest day of the festival. Now, I want to stop for just a moment before I continue, because I want to give just a little bit of background to this festival of tabernacles, or the Feast of Tabernacles. Tabernacles was the third, as I mentioned, uh, of the um, large feasts that all Jewish men were expected to keep. It was held during fall, September, October, depending on which year. And it was, a, rep- it was a, a celebration of the harvest of all of the trees, the olive groves, the fruit trees, the, the nuts and whatnot that were grown on trees. And during that time, when all of the fruit came into fruition and was ready to be picked, the people would have to go out and live in ramshackle tents or, or lean-tos or tabernacles out in the fields in order to protect their crops. So that's one of the reasons why they would build these tabernacles or these lean-tos. But it was also a reminder of the season, the years that the Israelites spent in the wilderness as God was leading them from slavery in Egypt through to the promised land, where they were also living in these ramshackle lean-tos. So that was one aspect of it. But the other thing about it is that this was a very dry season in Israel. You would had the whole summer. The rains had been back there in the spring. It was now summertime. Summer is over. The wells are starting to dry up. It is the most dry season in Israel. And they began to pray for God's provision of water. So one aspect of this seven-day celebration was what they called the water ceremony. Every morning, the Jewish priest would come down from the temple with a golden pitcher, and they would walk down to the Gahon Spring outside the walls of Jerusalem, and down to the spring they would fill the pitcher. And as they're filling the pitcher, the people are singing this this verse from Isaiah 12, verse 3. Can we throw that up on the board? This is what they would be singing. With joy you will draw water from the wells of salvation. So this act of drawing water was an act of celebrating the fact that God would redeem, that God would save them. They would take this golden pitcher full of water, and they would walk back up, and they're singing like Psalms 1. 13 through 118. They're singing these psalms as they walk back up to the temple. And then when they get up to the altar at the temple, they would pour this water out on the altar and it would flow down and a little stream would come from the altar. There was symbolism galore in this. The first symbol was this prayer for rain, prayer for water, because it's the dry season for them. But the second symbol of what this represented was all throughout scripture, particularly in the prophet Zechariah, the prophet Ezekiel, they talked about God's blessing upon his people would be a river flowing from the temple. And so the fact that they were pouring water from the rock and it was flowing out like a river was symbolic of their prayer for God's blessing upon Israel. Furthermore, it reminded them of the times as they were wandering through the wilderness where God provided water out of the very rocks to to miraculously help them as they wandered through the desert. Thousands of people God providing water for. That, this was all the symbolism wrapped up in this water ceremony. And on the seventh day, this ceremony took place not once, but seven times they did this procession down to the spring, back up to the altar, down to the spring, back up to the altar. With that in mind, let's keep reading now. Verse 37. On the last and the greatest day of the festival, the day that they would go seven times down to the the Gihon Spring and back, Jesus stood and in a loud voice he declared, Let anyone who thirsts come to me and drink. Because whoever believes in me, as scripture has said, rivers of living water will flow from within them. Remember when Jesus back in chapter 6 fed the multitudes? Out of a couple loaves of bread, he fed thousands of people. 
And then, using the symbolism of the bread, he said, I am the true bread from heaven. Eat of me, drink of my blood, and you will have life. In the same way now he is taking, he's commandeering this symbolism of the water ceremony. He's saying, I am the true source of living water. If you want to have life, come to me, and I will give you true living water. Verse 39, but by this he meant the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were later to receive. In other words, he's saying, come to me and you will receive the stream of living water and the water that will well within you, that will give you life and ultimately emanate out of you is the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of God residing within you, giving you life. As we get deeper into John, we're going to find out more about this Holy Spirit, so I'm not going to dwell on that. But suffice it to say, Jesus commandeers a very central symbol to this whole thing and says, this is talking about me. This is foreshadowing about me. Up to this time, the spirit had not been given since Jesus had not yet been glorified. Verse 40, upon hearing his words, some of the people said, man, surely this man is the prophet, the one that Moses said would come after him. In Deuteronomy, Moses had said, after me will come another prophet who will speak the words of God like I have, who will lead the people like I have and will bless you because God will bless him and through him bless you. So they're saying he's the prophet that Moses told us about. Others said he's the Messiah, God's anointed redeemer, the one we've been waiting for. But still others said, how can he be the Messiah or how can the Messiah come from Galilee, from that little podunk village? Does not scripture say that the Messiah will come from David's descendants, be a descendant of David, and that he will come from Bethlehem, the town where David lived? Now, we know where Jesus, we know the whole nativity story. We know the fact that Jesus was born in Bethlehem. And in the books that have all of the the long litany of, of he begat him, begat him in those genealogies, we find that both from Mary and ultimately, um, who is Mary? Thank you. One of those mornings. Joseph, even from Joseph, even though Joseph was not his father, he was still in the line of David. So both lines were, were tied to David, even though Mary was his mother. So both of those things that were prophesied over Jesus are true. But the people who are looking at him and going, wait, he's from Podunkville. He's the son of a carpenter. He's nobody. How can he possibly be the Messiah? And so many people just wrote him off. Verse 34, I'm sorry, verse 43. Thus the people were divided against Jesus. Some going, I think he's the Messiah. Other people going, there's no way. He's not our guy. He is a total pretender to the throne. Some wanted to seize him, but no one laid a hand on him. Verse 45, finally, the temple guards who had been sent, remember, by the Pharisees to go arrest him. Finally, the temple guards went back to the chief priests and the Pharisees who asked them, why didn't you bring him in? We sent you with very clear instructions. Arrest that man. Why are you here without him? Verse 46, the temple guards responded, well, no one ever spoke the way this man does. There's just something about him, and we could not bring ourselves to arrest him. You mean he's deceived you also, the Pharisees retorted? Have any of the rulers of the Pharisees believed in this man? No. But this mob that knows nothing of the law, there's a curse on them. They're blind. They're silly. They are taken by a, by a shyster. And the Pharisees completely write off these temple guards because all of a sudden they have the inkling of faith in this guy Jesus. 
Now, it's ironic what they said. They said, have any, look, at, look at all of the rulers of the Pharisees. Look at the Sanhedrin. Have any of us declared our faith in him? But wasn't there a guy that was a ruler, was a part of the Sanhedrin, was a Pharisee, and at some point went to Jesus at night to have a conversation? What was that guy's name? Nick at night. Nicodemus, right? So Nicodemus was part of that group and did actually seek Jesus out to try to understand who are you? And, and just in case we forgot that, look at verse 50, the very next verse. Nicodemus, who had gone to Jesus earlier and who was one of their own number, asked, well, does our law condemn a man without first hearing him to find out what he's been doing? Don't we at least owe this man the opportunity to speak on his own rather than just condemning him? Don't we owe it to ourselves to listen? Because what if he is whom he, said, he says he is? So Nicodemus was one of those members that was beginning to have faith in Jesus, was beginning to think there's something to this guy, although he was not willing to go out and be outspoken about his faith in him just yet. Verse 52. They replied, what, are you from Galilee too? You know, look into it and you'll find that a prophet does not come out of Galilee. They mock him. They tear him down because he would have the audacity to suggest that perhaps they should give Jesus an opportunity to speak on his own. That perhaps they should listen and consider what he's saying. And I've got to tell you, I've been wrestling all week with, okay, this is great, but so what? That's the question I always ask whenever I'm reading scripture. So what? What does this have to say to me? What does this have to say to us in the year 2014? Because I can look at this and I see a whole bunch of people who were caught up. I think this has more to say about the people that were around Jesus than it has to say about Jesus himself. Because every single time that Jesus began to speak, any time that the gospel is presented, Jesus would go on trial. And every single individual who heard him had a question that they had to ask for themselves, answer for themselves. Who do I say he is? Who is he to me? For some of those people, the answer was easy. He is a complete fraud. He's a nobody. This is a pretender to the throne and he's dangerous and he must be silenced. That was the approach that many of the Pharisees, many of the religious elite had. But on the other side, there were some like his disciples whose the answer was easy for them as well. He's the Messiah. He's the one we've been waiting for. This is our man. And then there were some that were in the middle who had not yet made up their mind. I don't know who he is. He could be the prophet. He could be the Messiah. I don't know. But I'm afraid to say anything because I'm afraid that if I say that I'm beginning to have faith in him, not only will I be mocked, but I'm going to become the brunt of the persecution that's currently directed at Jesus. I'm going to be somebody who would speak out about their faith in this day and age could very easily be kicked out of the temple kicked out of their faith altogether, basically said, you're no longer a part of this Jewish body. And that would mean that he would lose his standing socially. It would mean that he could be kicked out of his family. The closest thing that I can give to what this is like modern day is somebody who comes to know Jesus Christ out of the Muslim faith. Because somebody who comes to know Jesus out of the Muslim faith is cut off from their family. They are no longer considered a member of their own family. And as we're reading about lately, and this is horrifying, Many people are losing their lives, even children being killed for professing faith in Jesus Christ. That's happening today around the world. And it's horrifying and it's sobering. 
And that was the, the, the milieu in which these people were finding themselves going, I want to believe, but I don't, the cost is so great. I don't know what to do. And so they, they sat on the fence and they wrestled with it. And so much of this was going on. And I go, okay, well, I recognize what that says to people who are living in the, in the Middle East right now, who are considering faith in Jesus Christ. But what does that say to us here in the religiously free, at least for now, America, where we have the right to worship God or not to worship God, the right to declare ourselves as Christians in a supposedly Christian environment. And yet, if I'm honest, we have a very similar type of hostility towards Christ. Now, it may not necessarily come from the religious elite, but we still live in a a hostile environment with a government that says there is a very clear separation between church and state, and we will use that to silence anybody who would speak out for Christ. We will kick people out of the military for being overtly Christ followers. I see this all the time on social media when somebody would have the audacity to articulate a faith in Jesus Christ in a crucified carpenter and then to begin to articulate to a spouse that they hold to the teachings that he has given us. Even when they fly in the face of our liberally progressive teaching of the day and we begin to go, oh, I don't want to say anything because I don't want to ostracize myself. I recognize in myself that espousing my faith in Jesus Christ and standing up and saying, yes, I'm a Christ follower. Yes, I believe in him so much that I have given him my life and I am trying to follow him to the best of my ability. I am not my own. I've been bought at a price. To articulate that will push people away. And I wrestle with this, with this desire to both be a good witness while at the same time, innately I want to be accepted by everybody. I want to be liked. I, and the acceptance and, and, and faith in Jesus don't always go hand in hand, do they? Jesus knew this. His brothers are going, go up to Jerusalem. Go teach. Go minister. Go heal. And he's saying, you guys don't get it. To you, any time is good to go up there. To you, any time that I can get out there and be seen is a good time. But the message that I preach is truth. I tell people that their deeds are evil. That doesn't go over so well. I am the light of the world. This is from John chapter 3. I'm the light of the world that's come into this world. But people love darkness because their deeds are evil. And so they stay out of the light. I didn't come to bring peace. I came to... I can be divisive. It'll divide mother from father, child from parent. Because some will claim to have faith in me. Some will follow me and it will absolutely divide people. And I look at my own life. And I look at my own desire to be a representative of Jesus Christ. And I recognize in myself this fear of speaking out. When people ask me, what do I do? I have to admit sometimes I don't want to tell them I'm a pastor because I know that the conversation is going to change instantly. I know that in many ways, most of those people are going to kind of take a step back and just kind of go, okay, we're going to shut this conversation down. They're not going to be as real with me. And I wrestle with, why, why am I ashamed of this? And I, I, like, I am not ashamed of Jesus Christ, and yet at the same time, I have, I have taken such a passive role to being his representative out in the, in the world because there is such open hostility 
to who Jesus Christ is. And I am convicted this morning by the fact that Jesus lived for an audience of one, was not ashamed of where he came from, and recognized that when he spoke the truth, people would walk away from him. People would reject him, and that's okay. Because there was not a fence that people could sit on. He didn't give people that benefit of being able to just go, yeah, I believe in God, but I'm not really going to do what he says. In the very next chapter, he says, if you are my disciples, you will do what I say. Then you'll know the truth and the truth will set you free. In this chapter, he says, if you do what I say, then you will know whether what I say is from myself or from God. Obedience to him, allowing him to be Lord, not just paying him lip service. We live in a country that pays so much lip service to Jesus Christ. We call ourselves Christ followers, but you, look, you begin to look at our lives, you begin to look at our society, you begin to look at the things we spend our money on, where we spend our time, the values that we have, and you begin to question whether we have Jesus Christ as Lord, or whether our comfort is Lord, or whether acceptance is Lord. And this morning I have to look at myself and say, who is Jesus to me? Is he just some good teacher that had some, who espoused some good teaching, and that's enough? Is he some fraud that claimed to be the son of God, but he wasn't? Or is he truly God's Messiah, God's anointed redeemer? Is he truly worthy to be savior and is he worthy to be Lord? And if so, how does that play out in my own life? Because that's where the rubber meets the road. I don't personally feel it's enough to simply say, Jesus, you are my Lord. It's more, how do I live my life? That declares. Jesus never said, hey, pray this prayer and truly you'll be with me in paradise. So he, he said, follow me. That was the invitation that people gave to pe- Jesus gave to people. Follow me. And so this morning, I, wanna, I want to simply ask you the same question that every single person that we looked at this morning had to answer for themselves. Not just who do you say Jesus is, but who is Jesus to you? Is he your Lord? And if so, what is the evidence in your life that substantiates that claim? And if you are still on the fence, and if you're still, if you look at yourself, and this is, I'm not trying to shower guilt or anything on anybody. But this is convicting to me. If he is the Lord of our lives, no. If we're at that point where we go, I'd like to call him Lord, but honestly, I look at myself and I go, I don't know. I don't know where I stand. I kind of feel like I'm on the fence. I kind of feel like one of those people who goes, I think he is, but I'm not quite sure. Then would you please take the same posture that Nicodemus took rather than making a decision blindly, either... I believe or I don't believe. Let's condemn him. He said, doesn't he deserve to have the right to speak? Don't we owe it to ourselves to hear this man out? So rather than just speaking about Jesus, my prayer would be that you would come to him. That any questions that you have, you would bring to the foot of the cross and just go, God, I don't, I don't know the answer to this. I need help. And I got to tell you, the cost is pretty big. But would you help my faith to surmount my fear? Would you show me who you are? Would you confirm in me 
what it is you want me to know about you. I don't want to just know about you. I don't want to just know stories or interesting tidbits of detail. I want to know you personally. Can we do some life together? So let's pray. Father, help us to wrestle with this question of who, who is Christ to us? Jesus, we want to know you, not just know about you. And you know that the obstacles, the impediments that are impeding us from being wholly devoted to you. We submit our lives to you. We submit our questions to you. I love the fact that you are bigger than our questions, that you're bigger than our emotions, that you are a big enough God to handle our doubts even. And so we come to you, God, just as we are. Recognizing that prayer isn't a time to be good. It's not a time to pretend we've got it all together. Prayer is a time to be honest. You know us better than we know ourselves. So we come right now just as we are. Say, have your way with us. I want to I specifically lift up our brothers and sisters around the world who are tasting the kind of persecution that we can only imagine in our, our worst nightmares. And I pray, Father, that you would glorify yourself through their lives, short as they may be in some circumstances. I thank you, Jesus, that because of what you did on the cross, their martyrdom does not get the last word. I pray that you would glorify yourself through them, that you would glorify yourself through us, that your kingdom would advance, and that ultimately your will would be done in our world, in our community, in our own hearts, and in our own families, just as it is in heaven. And the questions that we carry with us, God, we we bring them to you, not discounting them, not saying that they don't matter, but saying they matter because you matter, and we want to understand Would you help us to wrestle through these questions? Would you answer them in your timing and in your own way for your name's sake? Jesus, in your name. Amen.